Here we are again in another day and I wondered where you were left last night. After such a um, enigmatic little piece of the sutta and how we work with these things, what does it mean for us as we're sitting here and I was thinking about this morning what what our experience of this you know there is no west wall there's no ground this whole when when things are not finding a place to strike where to experience it and I thought the the way Lumpur Cha unhinged this particular kind of grasping was with a phrase, my nair, my nair, uncertain. Yeah? So that we see the mind trying to land and take a view. You know? It really can be really strong in relation to each other. You know? We've already decided who each of us are. You know, you've been sitting together, seeing people coming and going, and the kind of views that can form, and how we don't have this experience crystallizing, taking, taking shape, is with this minor uncertain. We keep a question mark there. Maybe it's like that, maybe it's not. What we do know is if we sit in a different place in the room, we experience the room differently. So how you see something is configured from where you're looking. So even recognising that can help stop this deciding what things are in a really solid way. It's not that we don't, I mean we have to be able to function, but it's it's getting lighter about it. Getting really light. So different folks have been asking because this sutta, this whole discourse, can start to have a kind of heavy, dry aspect to it. If we're not, if we're taking it from the point of view of a construct, a mental construct or an idea, what the trick is, is to be taking it from direct experience. What is it like when we don't have such strong views about each other. Is it easier? Is this suffering less? Yeah? So it can be really simple. How do I come out of this tight tightness? And we can really check out our tendency to make constructs out of some of this stuff is in relation to anicca. As an idea, it's disastrous. 
I remember going, you know, when I was young to Thailand and in such places you can practice and monasteries are there, practice places are there in Asia and you can, you know, you can just practice if you are okay with the forms. And I was there going gung-ho, as they say, you know, full on. And, but looking at everything as a nature. And I was sitting there and it was, I could feel my heart just kind of tearing in pieces. Yeah. And it was a time where Ajahn Pasanal was there. And he said to me, can you hear the birds singing? And I could feel this hump in my mind. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, that doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they're impermanent too. <laughs> but going away with this inquiry, what is he trying to point me at? And, and starting to listen, coming out of the view. What is it like to hear the birds sing? And what we see is, if we're directly present here and now with the movement of things, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's not a deadening, it's actually coming more fully alive. Yeah. The joy of not holding on, not deciding what things are, actually being willing to be fully available to the exact experience. But it undercuts the holding. Yeah. It destroys suffering. Yeah. Which is why the Buddha said one of the most powerful things we can contemplate is anicca. Because that whole holding things, permanent, fixed, is dukkha. And it's what we take birth on, what consciousness takes as a food. Yeah. So it's to be really careful because we can really lacerate ourselves with some of this stuff. Yeah. To actually really feel it. I you know, like many of you, you know, I had a, a Oh, after this time in Thailand, I went on pilgrimage. And that was a wild thing. You know, it was so intense. I went off by myself in all my intensity and went on pilgrimage. And all kinds of things happened. But towards the end of it, I met somebody on a dusty road who was also on their way to Lumbini. Yeah, it was really funny, they were carrying this huge bag 
and we had miles to walk through the dust. Most were off to the, no, it was Kushnagar we were going. We're off to the Buddha's, the place the Buddha died. And, they, and it turned out they were loaded down with texts. <laughs> Not these, because these weren't yet translated, but they, they were just loaded down. But it was, we, as you do when you're on the road, you strike up companionships. How lovely it was to have somebody on pilgrimage. And with a, you know, really inquiring mind, they were into um, Wittgenstein. Mm. They were a German philosopher. Mm. Yeah? And so it was a real delight. And we, we kind of joined up for this last bit of my pilgrimage. So, you know, I'd got to the place the Buddha died and it was just extraordinary to be there and then we had to go, I can't remember it all anyway, but I know at a certain point we ended back in Varanasi and it was, I knew I was going to ordain. Yeah, so it was time for me to head on the road because I'd said I would be home by a certain time so I could get to England. <coughs> so there it was, and I knew somehow I c it was just heartbreaking to leave this person. I think it was, a, for me, it was that sense of all I was going to have to leave. You know, I was going to go home and go from one side of the world to the other. And at a time where travel was so difficult and we didn't have internet and we didn't have you know, phones maybe once every six months. So a sense of really, you know, this was going to be a bit drastic. And I remember thinking, well, because of the way the buses work in India, you need to allow a lot of time. So I knew I had to set out about three or four in the morning you know, to walk to where the buses went from, whatever. And so, well, that's good. It's easier to leave for me in the early morning when everything, everyone is sleeping. So I can just slip out. And it was, I went into the room where they were sleeping. And you'll have experienced this, and that whole sense of, actually only could be here forever. And that when you really feel that, those moments where we just don't want it to change. And what was powerful was seeing their breathing and realising breath, movement is life. And so we, we have to stay with the movement. It's not life-denying. Mm. And we keep abandoning into it. Mm. So seeing their breathing, it was easy to go. Mm. Just, and we, with ourselves, with all these conditions, when we really see what life is, it has, it's a very different thing than the idea of it. Yeah? So, be careful with this sutta. Because 
It brings us to the Anapanasati Sutta. And I said I'd read a bit of it, and it's really relevant because what, what the Buddha says about the cultivation of meditations, and he's, you know, before as the sutra unfolds, the community's all gathered, and he looks out and he sees that there are people who are cultivating loving-kindness, equanimity, they're cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness, they're cultivating the three right habits. You get a sense that different people have different cultivations going on. In a sense, I mean, they all converge in the same place, but different faculties, different things happening. And he says, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, there's great fruit and great benefit. Now, I know for some of you the breath is not your object. So take mindfulness of body. You know, we're talking about though something really incarnated. When mindfulness of breathing is of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. When the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated, they fulfill seven enlightenment factors. When the seven enlightenment factors are developed and cultivated, they fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. And how is it developed and cultivated? So, you know, do you know what the seven enlightenment factors are? Oh, all right. But those who don't, um, it's nice to get the words from the Buddha. So maybe we can, maybe I'll read a little bit of this and then come to them because go with the logic of the sutta. Um, so, in a sense, how do we cultivate it? We find a suitable place, we sit with the body erect, and establish mindfulness. Ever mindful, we breathe in. Ever mindful, we breathe out. Breathing in long, we understand. I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, we understand. I breathe out long. Breathing in short, we understand. I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, we understand. I breathe out short. Yeah. So we we know what's going on. We train thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. We train thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. We train thus, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. I shall breathe out tranquilizing the body formation. So we're in the first foundation of mindfulness. And we're, in my experience, this is a process that naturally happens. A long breath as we pay attention and I'm not meaning an idea of the breath, I mean actually 
feeling it. It changes. It softens and gets finer. Yeah? We, we know it. We know the long, we know the short. And the short is, you'll experience it differently, but in a way I experience it, it's a bit like it goes from the mind is following the breath to the mind is steady and the breath is coming through it. It's almost like the way we experience awareness shifts. Yeah. But get your own understanding. Feel it what this would be like. And breathing, feeling the whole body. And in the many of the commentaries, we're talking about the, the whole breath body. It's like the breath has filled the body. And how we know this is from a simile the Buddha uses. Later on, as this experience deepens, because the next phase in mindfulness of breathing is I shall breathe in experiencing rapture. I shall breathe out experiencing rapture. I shall breathe out experiencing pleasure. So the first word is pity, so it's a kind of more effervescent quality. And pleasure is more a sense of well-being, it's more settled, deeper quality. So I shall experience, breathe in experiencing the mental formation. I shall breathe out experiencing the mental formation. So these ex- pity, sukha, these are seen as mental formations. You know, they, they are, you know, they're, they're affect the intending and the attention of the mind. Yeah. And we tranquilize them. So we let this kind of, when you first experience it, it can be a bit and in a way we let that just settle so we're actually more stable and present and it can be it can be really a subtle thing just a sense of feeling well yeah so we're not talking about flashing lights necessarily so don't it's not that we're grasping after anything it's just feeling settled present and settled and feeling this fullness, that we've actually come out of the fragmentation we so often live in, into a sense of connection and presence. It's very soothing. Yeah? And when the Buddha talks about this experience, he says, make this rapture and pleasure, drench, steep, fill and pervade the body so that there is no part of the whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born in seclusion just as a skilled bath person or their apprentice heaps bath powder in a metal basin and so we've got we don't maybe some of you do most people don't have bath powder but in India it's more common so it's a bit like soap powder it's it's a the soap hasn't been made into cakes. Yeah? It's the kind of, you then, something you add water to. So, sprinkling it gradually with water kneads it till it 
The moisture wets this ball of bath powder, soaks it, soaks it and pervades it inside and out. Yet the ball itself does not ooze. So too, we make rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body. So that no part is unpervaded. Yeah. So this is mindfulness of the body. And as I say, we're, it, we're not talking about necessarily some rapturous things, but the sense of well-being. We really let the body feel it. We let all the stress and tension relax. And it's to recognise the Buddha's talking not about some dry state. He's teaching about happiness. So, as we grapple with the sutta, just feel that the Buddha's saying that, no, it's not that all pleasure is wrong. It's about being careful in how we relate. So in meditation, the very relief of the stability is helpful. We don't want to dry up. And that can be the danger in these kind of practices. It should be an experience of increasing ease. That doesn't mean that into this softened experience some of the stuff we need to feel doesn't arise. Some of the, they call them parka, the result. Things we've seen, heard, whatever, can arise. But the advantage of this Stability is we cannot, we don't grasp it in the same way. We can hold this quality of my near uncertainty around the thought formations and perceptions we have. Maybe it was white, maybe it was green, you know? It's just about getting more fluid. So, my experience, just living our lives, if all we take away from some of this is a sense of knowing that from a place of well-being, it's easier to understand what our experience is. And that, that from that place we can inquire into what really is going on. That we stop we stop just getting trapped by perception. Because if we're really freed up, we then have this incredible capacity to respond. So it's not about getting dead on a kind of energetic level. Yeah. So, yes, so 
I don't know if that answers a few of the questions that have come in, but a, a sense of you know, we use this time you know, to cultivate and let the mind get stable and then use that stability to check things out. And it's likely, you know, sometimes it feels pleasant, other times it feels unpleasant, just like our physicality. But we get so we're not so concerned about the conditions, we're more interested in the inquiry. It's a bit like our allegiance starts to shift. So, yeah. So that. And in you know, terms of where we're up to in the retreat, um, we've been, you know, the encouragement has been to really be responsive to your own needs in terms of where you are in the hall and what was going on. And we're in two day Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Yeah? So this is traditionally a time where things can open up a bit in terms of structure and you know and we because the glass hasn't been shaken so much, things settle and you can often feel you're a bit freer in terms of being able to practice. So what can be helpful is to come even more fully into your own rhythm. And what my sense is, is that we'll hold with the three-quarter of an hour walking sitting in the hall, because for some people it's really helpful to be able to dip in and out of. And then for others of you, if you want to find an empty place under the foot of a tree to practice. There are such places here. So it's it's a bit like be where you need to be. And we're so fortunate it's summer here, so we can spread out into this environment. So maybe that you spend the morning in the rhythm of the group and then in the afternoon you you practice out in nature and just watch what's going on out there. Okay. Everything is teaching us to quote Bumpo Cha. So yeah. So no one is checking up on anyone else. It's a it's a real sense that we take authority and we check out what works. And you might find that if you're outside, you get too scattered and you find it more helpful to be in the rhythm of the group. And that might be true one day and not true another. So it's really to know what you need. And always we're trying to keep a sense of balance and rhythm. Rhythm of the breath, Rhythm of the walking, rhythm of the body, rhythm in what we're doing, because rhythm really helps. Yeah. So 
Find your rhythm. There are a few questions, some I haven't answered and I'll come to, but just to respond to another of them that was put in. Um, no, just for a bit more clarification about the eight precepts. So I thought it might have been helpful you know, to read them. And once again, if you know this and if you don't need to attend, practice tuning me out. Let me just find them. So, so taking the precepts formally is usually done by a couple of things in the beginning. A sense of refuge. We take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And you know, we can look at this in a very traditional way, a historical Buddha who left us this incredible legacy of teaching. We can look at it, Dharma is this stuff in these books. We can look at it as Sangha, those who practice. Yeah. Or I find it more helpful to look at it as an internal experience. This Buddha, the waking up, the knowing, the Dharma, the way things are, the Sangha, this practice path. So taking refuge in my, my own, if we frame it from that point of view, this ability of the mind to be present to the way things are. This is a supreme refuge. It's independent of conditions. Yeah? So we start with this refuge and then the precepts, as I was explaining the other night, we have we have renunciant precepts and ethical precepts. And the five precepts are a kind of ethical framework that we train with. It's not that it doesn't say you must be perfect in this. It says I undertake to train, to use them as an investigation. And they've framed panatipata. I undertake the precept to refrain from destroying living creatures. And if we take it in its deepest meaning, a precept undertaken in harmlessness. Of course, it's the most profound training of them all. Yeah. So harmlessness, adinadana, not taking, not stealing, not taking what is not given, abramacharya. So this is now in the eight precepts. It's it's brahmacharya, brahmacharya, like so that we're refraining from any kind of intentional sexual behaviour. So you can see that 
another level is, is the renunciant precept. And in this context, it's something we're all undertaking. Um, we get musawada, incorrect speech. Then there's the precept around not taking drink and drugs that lead to carelessness. So not getting ourselves so we're so dulled out, we're just heedless. Yeah. Um, then the one that is most obvious in terms of the sheep down on the hall is the not eating at wrong times. And what that means is not eating after the sun is in its zenith. Yeah. So the time can change a bit. In daylight saving, it might be one o'clock, or you know, time's such tricky stuff. But a sense of not simplifying by, by not concerning oneself with food in the afternoon. So it's about simplification. Reta refraining from entertainment, beautification, and adornment. So we're all doing it. Yeah. Unless some of you plugged into some wild something in the night, but yeah. we're not, you know, we're not taking in a lot of this other stimulus. We're actually once again just simplifying. We're not, we're not spending a lot of mental attention about what we look like. So it can be a relief, and not lying on a high or luxurious sleeping place. We have little control over where we're sleeping. Some of you are lying very high. <laughs> but I don't know that you would class it as luxurious. <laughs> so, so, you know, and you can take it in a practical way, but really it's about what they say, not indulging in sleep. So many of you I've been encouraging to sleep because you're exhausted, or we're exhausted. Um, but it's about just using sleep to dull out. Yeah. You know, letting this dullness take over. And it, it, I don't know, it took me years and years to get a handle on how much sleep is needed at different times come out of the ideas. So it, in this context it can be a wonderful experimentation. But given what many of our lives are like, you'll be, many of you actually probably have needed a jolly good sleep. <laughs> and that's not breaking the precept. Yeah? We are practicing the middle way. So you can see they're just ways of having other points of reference to just examine what our behaviour, what we're doing. And there is a sign-up sheet for the eight precepts and it can be a day if you like and it may be something you want to experiment with but it may be the wrong thing too at this time. Health, just what's happening in your practice. So. There's no compulsions there, it's just something Cloud Mountain is offering. And as I said that on Saturday, it's the full moon day 
of August. And these full moon days in, in Theravadan countries are often days where folk gather practicing the eight precepts. So it may be that just for that day you experiment. Tomorrow, the next day you can go home and eat properly. Or whatever. I'm even tinkering in my mind and I don't know if it's a good idea that we just maybe collect in terms of practicing a little later. But it you know, just because it's the end of the retreat and it's going to be the full moon and it can be so beautiful. But let us see why we're up to. But it, it can once again it's about rhythm and in in practice it can be helpful, you know, the moon has a rhythm. And in monastic places often they're following the moon's rhythm. Because rhythm is helpful. We're not a moon culture here, so, but we do follow the sun's rhythm. And just to feel the sun's rhythm, the day arising, the sun arising, the sun going down, so beginning, the ending. Yeah. Rhythm. Anicca. Okay, so anything else folk would like to clarify? I can imagine there could be some questions around last night, but we just know that tonight we'll look in a different way about the, this craving. Yeah? You mentioned last night um, to watch for harshness. Yeah. And um, throughout Ajita's question, the Buddha referred to uh, sense desire and craving, and it's part of the greed. Yeah. Well, right after that comes Nikama, right? And so I'm looking at renunciation with harshness that says, okay, when you get home, slam the door, lock it down, pearl the shades, don't talk to anybody, don't eat, don't. I mean, it's just. That's right, and that's why at the beginning I said we have to really look at the intention. Why was the Buddha saying this? Who was he saying it to, for that matter? Because he gives different teachings to different people. And you'll recognise that of these 16 Brahmin students that actually ask very different questions from very different places. So we need to know for ourselves and to know that there, we live in the world, it's our waking up place, but we need to also be sensitive to some of the impacts. So we, some of us have incredibly demanding jobs. Their, their 70 hour, 80 hour a day work. Yeah? Longer. It isn't about stopping that if it's lived from the right place. 
we're, we're here and it's about both you know, living our lives as a blessing but we need to look after ourselves in that so it's that renunciation of certain things is for our well-being that we're not watching a whole lot of really violent things. Yeah? It would be really unfortunate if we think it's about locking ourselves in a box. Because then what are we going to wake up to? You know, it's about this sense of refuge and inquiry. And as lay practitioners, it can be a bit confronting this quality of renunciation. Isn't it? Here am I going out to dinner. But, But it's about the intention and the attention and the quality with which we're doing things. It's about coming out of heedlessness. No? What if we just lived our lives being more sensitive to our impact on the planet? It's that kind of thing. That we're not misusing resources, we're not leaving all the lights blaring all the time, and you know, we're, it may not be so convenient to have to, as we move from room to room, to turn the lights on. But it's part of our caregiving and renunciation. It doesn't all have to be as comfortable as it possibly can. We, we're sensitive to where things come from. Yeah. Even if we look at it that way. We're not squandering resources. You know, I certainly know your country is very switched on to this. Yeah. You know, it's a big, um, it's a big ground of discussion. Those of you that are attuned to the impact of things and the kind of system that is about you know, using resources in a very exploitative way. So how do we relate to that? From our own place. So it, in this, I know there's a lot of talk of acting local, really acting locally. And the first locale is here. So, so that our practice doesn't become something we feel disempowered by. Our sensitivity is not disempowered. Yeah? And, and it's really helpful these times of cultivation because we can see more clearly. We get a chance to reassess. 
that help? You'll keep the blinds up? <laughs> and the windows up. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true, Patty, it can feel like that. Yeah. Or give it all up and go and find a hut. Yeah. And folk do that at, at times to great benefit. But once again, it's about rhythm, timing, what's needed. I was, you know, sitting this morning at breakfast and thinking what it's like to be in your 20s, you know, coming to the end of your time of study or whatever you've been doing. And most folk hit the road, get just enough to get a ticket somewhere and hit the road and start finding out about things and how, as practitioners, how wonderful that can be. You, you hit the road and you start going to practice places because particularly if you hit the road into Asia, you know, it doesn't take a lot of economic resources. These different times in our lives where different things are possible. And then our lives become about something else, you know, about service and participating in community, <coughs> different stages. But it was, I don't know what it was, I was sitting there and I thought of all the folk, the young folk from the states that cruised through my country, you know, picking apples, coming, opening up, you know, they're on their way from Thailand or wherever where they've been practicing. Just these different kind of rhythm of a life as well. You know, so they're, they're finding empty huts and then they'll come and they'll come home and they'll, they'll be part of the community. Okay. So it's not that one thing's right and the other thing's wrong. Yeah. Yes. Last night you said that the thought that you don't want to have is the place to wake up. And I instantly, in my heart, felt the truth of that. And my mind was like walking home all around it. And I wondered if you could speak to that. Tell me about it. Yeah. 
I wonder if, if, as I was saying this morning, whether if we hold this very soft question, the kind of question about our nature, my nair, the uncertainty of things, not out of aversion, but because what's really powerful about the things we don't want is they're often the things that are most configuring us. Yeah. So it's it's a really it's a balance because if we get too involved with the thinking it can completely capture and just proliferate off. Yeah. So it's to be in this stable place, not believing it, but being willing to listen. At times. And that whole sense of what does it take in in a... It can be helpful to really be cultivating actively the Brahma-Vihara. Friendliness, compassion, qualities of joy, and a real equanimity, a sense that things arise out of causes and conditions. Which is what Sariputta was saying last night. So that equanimity is really needed for most of us. This understanding of karma. Because it has a real stability to it. And it's seen as you need, if you're cultivating this meta quality, this friendliness, this willing to be present, you also need to have this equanimity. Yeah? Because it it keeps it true. Because if we have too much metta on some level, it can have an expectation for things to be a certain way, to be well or whatever, with the thinking even. And and the deepest love and kindness and compassion, this equanimity, is recognising things couldn't be any different. The resultant. Where the change can happen is in our response. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it's profound work. It's because it's a it's it's a making peace with something. Without getting engaged with the um, proliferation of it. 
Maybe, you know, you and I haven't spoken directly, maybe at some time we can just see how this is going. How pretty brave. Things have been going well, except uh, yesterday afternoon I hit the state of restlessness and agitation. And I know that uh, there's a handful of people who probably experienced that. And um, So I hope you find your patience with me as I find my way. Um, when you said last night, the thing or the place you don't want to go is where you should be. So I told you last night and I said, what do I do? And you said, stay with the restlessness. Um, meet it. Meet it. Yeah. Acknowledge it. Uh, let it come out in the walk. Is that, you said that right? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Met, right? it was, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go, yeah, where you don't want to go, that's probably where you should be. Well, in a compassionate way, what I was, I guess, meaning was when the body's got this huge restlessness in it, particularly when it's your first retreat, we don't want to be closing it down. It's got energy that wants to move. So it can be so powerful to get out on a walking path. Yes. And move with it, and you, you may start to feel it in a very different way. Yeah. You know, and why was the restlessness there? Someone had spent three or four hours sitting in meditation. I sat for the whole morning. I didn't do the walking, and I loved it. I just felt I got it was. Line. That's right, and then we got to kind of <laughs> <laughs> So it's wonderful. I'm, I'm delighted to hear you're experimenting and, uh, and that sense that there are some things it's actually easier to, to meet, you know, a bit like the Buddha says, well, you know, when, when you're running, you know you're running, and then at a certain point when you're running along, you say, well, what if I walked? Yeah? So it's not like we try to go from here to lying down. We actually meet it and let it, let it come back. Yeah. Middle way has never been my way. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's wonderful to hear you exploring. Thank you. You know, and and the trick of all of this is to be really kind. So it's very nice you let everybody know that here you are, brand spanking you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a few others here too. Oh, you yeah, so brave. So use that bravery. Yeah, the kind of courage that I'm just going for it, quality. Yeah. I'm not particularly reasonable. I haven't said, well, I'll do a day and then I'll do three days. And just really pick something up and go on with it. 
And some of us are like that. Yeah. Yeah. The first time I I've been practicing home for years, but the first not cute, but the first time I went away, I think it was three months or something. <laughs> <laughs> But I was young, you know? <laughs> we, we all manifest so differently and we then have slightly different predicaments to work with. Yeah? That's what's so lovely about being here in your Everybody's waking up and we're doing it all in our own way. Yeah? And, and it need, you know, playfully, like you're doing it, in a playful way. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Who's here? It's very... Yeah. I have more of a sense than some of you, you know, kind of, if we looked at a... You know, ultimately, I have no idea who's here, of course, but even <laughs> just in a conditioned level. We've got a tremendous mix of folk here. Folk who have never done a retreat before. Folk who have been practicing for decades and decades and decades, either formally within Buddhist practice or with some other profound cultivation. So you've got you've got such a. Strength in the room, you know. I can feel it when I'm sitting over in my seat. Just when I'm sitting with you all, you just feel the strength. So we use this, the the newness which we all need to keep finding. What it's like to be brand new. This beginner's mind, yeah, which has not got the same expectations and incrustations in it. We haven't already decided what a retreat is like. We're experimenting. So draw on some of this newness, those of you that have been here a long time. This beginner's mind. You see me racing through the ground. (laughs) 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 Give it a try on the song. (laughs) <laughs> okay, enough, eh? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.